In light of what's happened over the last few weeks in the United States of America, I thought it was really good for us to go back to one of our old episodes with a brilliant activist and thought leader, uh, Alicia Garza, who is one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. Since then, Alicia has founded her own organization, the Black Futures Lab. Our discussion entails all the ways in which we can be more anti-racist as Democrats. And originally I titled the, the episode, Are Democrats as Inclusive as We Think We Are? And that is so important to ask ourselves now more than ever, as we are protesting and lifting up and amplifying voices from Black thought leaders. I thought it was just so important that we revisit this episode. So without any further ado, welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Benes, and every week is a down for 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Alicia Garza, where I ask her, how can Democrats be anti-racist? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Benes. I'm Beyond, like, just so honored and so excited to meet in real life, Alicia Garza. Welcome. Thank you. Um, if you've been um not had the pleasure to know who Alicia Garza is, she's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. In addition to, like, you're doing a lot, like, in addition to, mm-hmm. which give us like a gorgeous PowerPoint presentation of like, because we're doing the National Domestic Workers Association. Alliance. But Alliance. Good. So mm, you got the A. It yeah. was. <laughs> It works for me. (laughs) (laughs) But which is, so there's that. Mm -hmm. Then there's? Supermajority, which is a new home for women's activism. And? Excellent. And the Black Futures Lab, which works to make black people powerful in politics. Ah. Your Instagram feed must be so gorgeous and so lit. I'll lean back. I swear this down engineer. Okay. Um, It must be so lit. I mean, we do our thing. So... I told usually on getting curious, I find myself um, doing my normal approach into life, which is just like hurl yourself into it. And well done. Um, but I am it, when I find myself really respecting or being nervous to interview someone. I do. I have noticed upon listening to more of my own episodes, I talk too much. <laughs> so I so I told you that I'm trying to like. I gave you a little overview right before we started recording of my mm-hmm. quick little three bullet points. That it was yes. all like of two minutes, yes. so it wasn't too much like nasty pre production. It's fantastic. But Don't basically, worry. you know, you are a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. which is a really important organization, and. I basically wanted to start off with you kind of giving the people a little bit of a rundown of like how Black Lives Matter or how Black Lives Matter started Mm -hmm. and and how you became involved in it. But you are the co-creator of it, so it's not really how you became involved. But how did you (laughs) come into this? Sure. Yeah. Well, six years ago this week, actually, uh, Patrice and Opal and I created um, what we thought was going to be a series of social media pages that was designed to bring people together who were upset and wanted to get activated after the man who murdered Trayvon Martin was acquitted of his murder. And if you remember, uh, Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman in Sanford, Florida. He was a 17-year-old boy who during the break in a sports game, went to the corner store to get snacks for his brother and himself, and he never made it home. And there was a lot of controversy in the country because initially when we all found out that this child had been killed, um, the district attorney in Florida, uh, Angela Corey, had refused to press charges against George Zimmerman, who was a self-appointed like neighborhood watch person who decided that day that Trayvon Martin didn't belong in the community that he lived in with his father. It took protest and pressure for Angela Corey to press charges. In Florida, as you know, there are laws like there are in states across the country that um, are you know, versions of what are called stand your ground laws. And stand your ground laws basically say that you are allowed to, quote unquote, defend yourself if your property um, is being threatened. Uh, In this particular case, of course, Trayvon Martin was walking down the street. Uh, George Zimmerman was fearful of Trayvon and and murdered him. And he actually stalked Trayvon. He stalked him, yes, because he called 911 to report somebody suspicious. And actually the dispatcher said, don't follow him, don't follow him and actually leave him alone. And he 
did what he did anyways. And that was a tragedy. But I think the real and another gut punch, I should say, was that he was acquitted. And for me and Patrice uh, and Opal, I think what we felt as organizers was that this was really an opportunity for people not just to be outraged on social media, but to be able to connect with each other to do something together. Um, What we know is that these kinds of killings happen more frequently than they should. We have laws on the books that protect people um, who take racist action. And so in order to change that, we need to have an anti-racist movement. And that's really what Black Lives Matter was started as. It was started to uh, fight back against what we call state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. But it was also designed to um, bring black people together with our allies to uh, build the world that we want to live in. And so, again, we started as a series of pages. We had a Tumblr page. I don't know if that even like exists anymore. <laughs> well, I think, you know, since they canceled porn on it, I think that it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's you know. It's done. Uh, um, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. George fucking Zimmerman. George fucking Zimmerman, who has continued to be in the news. Well, well, first of all, thank you. So there was so four like main founders of three. black three mm-hmm. who it's okay taking it again. Three main founders of three. of Black Lives Matter, and and one thing that I think is interesting that resonates with me about what I was reading in my gorgeous notes about the foundation or the starting of it is that it's like you are big on the intersectionality of how Black Lives Matter work because even though it was started around these in tragic and totally not okay, unjustifiable murders Mm -hmm. of young black men. Mm -hmm. But it's not, there's also Sandra Bland and there's also so many trans women who Mm -hmm. they're, whether it's rape or murder or Mm -hmm. attempted murders or like not investigated, under investigated, maybe not even reported. Like it's a very intersectional issue for people of color. Um, And I think that's really good that you guys have, well, important mm-hmm. that you sometimes I struggle to like make good words, but I understand um, me too. <laughs> but it's really important that you guys approach it mm-hmm. in this way. It's like, you know, it's very intersectional. One thing that I think is really that I just want your it's the force of the Black Lives Matter movement is so wide and so important. And it's something that like everyone knows about. But then when we think about, like, George Zimmerman, like, he became, like you said, Mm -hmm. continued to be someone who was in the news. He's become a lightning rod of people on the right. And there's, like, the opposite of Black Lives Matter, which was Blue Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. which how do we combat? Because I was just daydreaming last night when I was going to bed about how do we combat the clickbait of the right Mm -hmm. to make them understand the truth of like what is a cultural pain body Mm -hmm. that has been inflicted on people of color in this country. Eckhart totally calls it like a pain body. Like, but it's like there, that exists. Like there is racism that's like baked into every Mm -hmm. single thing. And I feel like there's this like equal and opposite reaction that Mm -hmm. happens when I feel like it makes sense. It makes sense to me. It makes sense. Like, but how, like, or do we not even try to quell that and just keep talking? Does that make sense of what the question it's is? It's perfect. Like, how do we quell that yeah. equal and opposite reaction in our approach? Or is it like not even our fucking problem to do that? Because, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't think we want to smash it. And here's why. Because. Well, not <laughs> smash it. Not smash it. You're right. I, I think that change is not linear. But one of the ways that we know that change is happening is when backlash occurs. Mm. So if we weren't a powerful message that was resonating with everyone, not just black people, but everyone who's going to say, like you did last night, "Hmm, that makes sense to me. Racism is baked into every single thing in our society. Well, that's been making sense to me for way more than last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Last night I was just like, how do we get these like. Assholes to stop writing these articles that just like make no sense that are so inflammatory and filled with misinformation, well, which further is, inflames like that right evangelical exactly. racist base. But they're trying to win you back. So I think it's important for us to look at it that way, that when the right starts to move a counter message, movement, etc., they're responding to what they feel like is losing ground. Oh. And so when we see things like Blue Lives Matter, right, they're playing on particular things that people 
um, are conflicted about. So policing is something that people are conflicted about in this country. Black people too. So when you hear things like, um, you know, Black Lives Matter is, you know, demonizing police officers, well, it's pulling on the heartstrings of people who are themselves police officers or their families or their loved ones, right? And for people who have police officers in their lives, I mean, I, I do, um, people start to say, well, that's not a somebody that I don't know. That's somebody that I'm close to and I love them and I want to protect them no matter what. And all of a sudden the conversation changes. It's not actually about whether or not individual police officers are good people or bad people. It's about a system, right, that is broken. Uh, or some people would say it's working exactly as it's designed. We could have that conversation on another episode. <laughs> um, but I, I think that what the right does really well is that they um, message issues in such a way that people get confused about what their values are. And um, that level of chaos and confusion is actually what they depend on. They uh, do it with uh, abortion. They do it with policing. They are doing it with immigration. And trans rights. Trans rights. Now, everything. Now, um, uh, you know what this reminds me of? Tell me. Um, Blue Lives Matter uh, versus Black Lives Matter is the false dichotomy of scarcity versus abundance. A hundred percent. Just because um, Black Lives Matter, there's enough space for everyone to matter. Like you that's don't right. need to fucking say Blue Lives Matter though, because that's all. It's like it's like it's like um, Tina Knowles said in uh, a seat at the table that like that's all we've ever been taught that like yeah. first that obviously yeah. first responders' lives matter, yeah. and yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. we respect people that enforce the law, and like right. obviously it's scary, and yes, of course, right. but there is also a system where like people of color have been like unduly targeted that's in right. their cars walking down the street, that's just like right. all over the fucking place, and there's no such thing as blue lives. That's yeah. a, it's a profession. Policing is a profession. It is a job that you choose to do. You're not mandated to do it. You can take it off at any point. I can never walk out of the studio and decide today I'm not going to be black. I don't get to take this off. Yeah. Right? Um, also, when people <laughs> think of really good um, arguments against things that I never even thought of in that way, it makes me get so excited. And I want to just throw that tripod that's in this recording studio out the window. I had to physically hold on to my, my yes. seat. Yes. Um, also, BTWs, you guys, um, we are in Philadelphia. I am, is our, It's my first episode I've ever recorded from here. Oh, I'm excited to yeah. be a part of it. Um, I'm so excited that you're part of it. So, But basically, it's, so it's six years ago, so it's 2013. Mm-hmm. You three decide that we're going to start this movement. We're going to start That's these right. social media pages. They end up becoming yeah. household names. And we didn't know we were st- – we didn't – that wasn't our intent was to start any movement. It we was just like wanted to create space for people. Yeah. Yeah. And then and, – and we didn't even talk about it, like that it was us. We just created it. But it led to incredible protests and it – I mean, like, I feel like I remember, like, massive, gorgeous protests yes. of freedom of speech. And, and But you, I think Black Lives Matter has been really successful in harnessing the inertia of the, of the launch mm-hmm. and continuing it. Because mm-hmm. I feel like I still hear about it. I feel like I still hear organization around it. I feel like I still hear, hear consistent messaging coming from Black Lives Matter or from Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's going on now? Like, what are you excited about within the organization of Black Lives Matter? How... Um, like, how's it going? What's happening now? All the things. Let me say that what helped to catalyze Black Lives Matter across the nation um, was the uprisings in Ferguson, Missouri, when Mike Brown was killed by Darren Wilson. And I think that that amplified the work that was happening. We were not the only people to be creating at that time. Uh, Black Youth Project 100 formed literally the day of the verdict. Um, and they are responsible for things like kicking Anita Alvarez out of office. She was like a corrupt prosecutor D- in in Wasn't she in the DA? Um, okay, wait. We're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with Morgan Be Curious right after this. Welcome well, back. Okay. Yeah, welcome back to Getting Curious. This is John Damon. We have Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and just an all-around incredible person. Um, so, based, so... So that sprang up in Ferguson, mm-hmm. and now keep telling me. Yep. So there was a lot of things that were happening at that same time. Black Youth Project 100 was formed uh, same year, same time as we were, and they built an organization that now has chapters across the country. I think five, um, and they've been incredibly, you know, uh, important in terms of uh, advancing a black queer feminist lens into our movement. 
at the time when uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted, organizations like the Dream Defenders and Power U in Miami, Florida, uh, took over the state capitol for 30 days, demanding an end to stand your ground laws. So I think what we saw in that moment was that a lot of organization was catalyzed, which then we all started to kind of meet each other. Right. And that is actually what builds movement. And so when Michael Brown is killed in Ferguson, Missouri, a year later, there is like a tiny bit of a roadmap. But also Ferguson, I think, put its own stamp on what it meant to build this movement. Right. And said, OK, we're we're actually bringing a different flavor to it. Today, you have the Movement for Black Lives, which is a coalition of you know, at least four dozen Black-led organizations that put out an incredible document in 2015 called The Vision for Black Lives, which is really a statement as to how you make Black Lives Matter in policy and law. Um, Where can we find that? You can find it at visionforblacklives.org. I hate that I don't know that. It's okay. Um, you also see Black Lives Matter and organizations inside of this movement getting much more involved in shaping democracy. And um, that is what I'm really excited about. We launched a new organization in 2018. And by we, I mean me. (laughs) You could just call me the HBIC of (laughs) Black Futures Lab. And really that organization came out of a desire for us to be powerful in politics. In 2016, after three years of this movement being incredibly powerful. Yeah, because I think... Just to give us that timeline, mm-hmm. so it's 2013, mm-hmm. Obama has just secured a second term. Correct. And then 2016 is approaching. Right. I do uh, a recap in my stand-up comedy Good. comparing um, <laughs> this like fierce artistic roller skaters um, to the election of 16 and 18 yeah. and they had like a fierce transformation Tuesday like they get way better yes. um, in 18 it's uh, not to self plug but it's Gene but yeah the 2016 <laughs> election as their short program was was a disaster right it really was and what we found was that we were being locked out of the conversation while also being told that um, if we didn't participate then we didn't have a right to complain And that was false choices all over the place. Number one, because nobody was engaging us around what can we do to change laws. There were laws that were changing, but they weren't engaging the people who literally were creating the pressure and the momentum to make that happen. And I think you see that specifically when you when you when you think about. Also, like, now, do I wish that Clinton had won in 16? Yes. Don't we all, given yes. where we are right now? Yes. and But right. even then I did. But even Fine. then. But when you see, well, I mean, I'm not saying in reference no. to primaries, but I'm saying, yeah, like, yeah. in reference to Trump. Like, given that choice, like, Period I, dot. yeah, yes. 100%. However, yes. I think that the proof is in the pudding in what you're saying when you have um, states like, you know, Minnesota and uh, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I know Minnesota and Wisconsin off the top of my head were not campaigned in at all. And I know that there's lots of disenfranchised people of color and That's marginalized right. community in these states that are That's affected right. with all sorts of like hardcore police brutality, like racial profiling. Right. And I'm from Illinois and I've seen racial profiling from police officers my entire life. That's right. Front row. So I've, you know what's up. I've seen it in cars. I've mm-hmm. seen it in where I was in cars with yeah. people of color where like they were searched, they yeah. were frisked. I was not even asked yep. to step out of the car. Yep. I've experienced this like because I come from yeah. like a small rural town and okay. like police will be on like a fucking on the next level. Oh my God. Yes, yes. 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 But especially to people of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you see that in 16. Like, I understand. I think I understand what. So yeah. but keep explaining to me like what that means. So, like, for example, um, you saw between 2013 and 2015 more people mobilized than at any point in the last period of civil rights. Ever. OK. So <laughs> and prior to the Women's March. We were the largest mobilizations that had ever happened in the history of the nation. But yet when we in early 2016 approached the DNC and said we want to have a debate on Black Lives Matter and issues that matter to black communities, they said, no, thank you. But yet here it was, this movement, right, is capturing the country. But yet the party uh, that supposedly represents the interests of people on the progressive side of things 
um, refuses to have a conversation about the biggest thing happening in the country. Can we? I mean, I'm cool if you want to edit this out. I've been naming names too. Debbie Wasserman Schwartz Debbie Wasserman didn't Schultz want to. Was like, okay, no thanks, and I have those receipts. And then what were the? So then what was like the follow up? Like really? And so, do you was it the same between like the Sanders campaign and the Clinton campaign? Was the Sanders campaign any more? Like we'll see. Here's what was so. Or is it just crickets across the board? It was crickets, or it was like weird stuff. So um, it's interesting that we're here, and Netroots Nation is happening just down the street. Um, and I know time, I'm not supposed to judge people for how they look. I know I'm judge. not. I know, I know I'm not. I know I'm not. And I really work on this. But here's the thing about this. I'm going to get so much fucking blowback for this. But since you took a chance to be vulnerable, honey, I'm going to do it too. <laughs> I feel like here is the thing about the burn. Here is the thing for me about the burn. Here is the thing for me about the burn. Here is the thing for me about him. Here is the thing for me about him. It's this. I If you cannot get a haircut and put in some pomade starting in the back of your hair working forward to just, why is it that I have Kamala in a full blow dry to perfection? Why do I have suits laid out? Why Why is it that everyone is holding them? And, and you don't even have to spend a lot of money on that. We could go to and get an environmentally sustainable, locally sourced organic pomade made right in Burlington, Bernie, Ooh. for $12 <laughs> and make it look like you give a fuck. <laughs> you know, how am I supposed to imagine you going into the G20 and trying to negotiate something for me, and it looks like you've got mothballs for, for your breath. <laughs> I, can't. I cannot. I cannot. And why are we holding up all these people to these expectations to look presidential? Like, talk about not looking presidential. You understand. I cannot. Well. So that has always kind of been how I feel. And I just unleashed it. I'm going to, I did. And But would I support him if he gets a nomination? Of course. Okay. But I would also just say this. And I want your feedback on this since we're going to go back to in this. Let's take it there. So but I had this, I had this um, boss tell me this one time, this colorist that I used to work for in the salon. And he was like. If someone ever tells you free anything, this is a free something, mm-hmm. someone paid a lot for it. Correct. So, like, that I do feel like I'm like, uh, like, I feel like a, I love like a free local, give me a free <laughs> local community college. I'm, I'm, give yes. me for like for families that don't make. But I do feel like when you say like, I don't want to pay. For, I've been doing hair for 13 years. Mm-hmm. I have had a lot of shitty yes. clients with shitty kids yes. that were little shits, and yes. I had to bite my tongue and handle business and just do their highlights and like not judge them for like what shitty fucking decisions <laughs> that they were employing and just being assholes, or just try to like have done their hair for long enough before I you Correct. know gave them some constructive feedback. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. But like, I don't want to pay for some of these rich people's college, and I think that's the problem when you mm. say free tuition is that it gives really, really, really because I mean. The, I, when you think about like the one percent getting that is true, but there's the one percent still like a lot. Mm. Like that's like a lot of rich ass people to send their kids to college if they mm-hmm. so choose. Mm-hmm. I don't like that story. You know, it's it's we have some good time to actually get into some of the real talk of the proposals that people are putting on the table. I took a right. I want to go back to 16 because I think this did. is really gorgeous. And so 16, so basically it was kind of crickets or weird stuff, which that's where I got yeah. it on the pomade because I'm like, if you're going out here with this, <laughs> if this is your personal grooming choices, the I feel like. falls though took me out. <laughs> but, <laughs> so here we are at Netroots Nation. And, you know, uh, five, four, four years ago, uh, candidates were on stage uh, in, I believe, in Arizona and they were being asked if they believe Black Lives Matter. Clinton didn't show. Uh, Bernie Sanders. Wait, Clinton wasn't there? Clinton didn't even come. Bernie Sanders, the largest progressive Democrat and it was that gathering other guy? of. So like, it was Bernie, ever. and then it was that other Democrat that got. Martin that, O'Malley. Yeah, who was there for from Maryland? Yes. Martin O'Malley says white lives matter. He does not. He literally did. No, he didn't. He said, black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter. Oh, God. Okay. Bernie Sanders uh, had a hard time. And, you know. Something about, like, political revolution. There was just, uh, you know, he. mm, Not even that? It was just hard for him to say it. And it's not, I don't think that it's that he doesn't believe it. I think that he, his framework does not allow him to really deeply understand why race and class matters. For him, it's class. 
For him, it's the economic structures of society that create all problems. And I'm like, cool, but the economy is racialized. The economy is gendered. The economy is sexualized, right? So you can't actually pull those things apart. But those are just examples of what 2016 was like. So I think that the, the tactics that were being chosen by the movement was like, Okay, you guys aren't going to invite us into a conversation, so we're going to storm into one. Yeah. Like, you're going to have this conversation no matter what. And then they started getting pissed off because they couldn't go to campaign stops and spew the same BS that they spew all the time because there would be somebody who would stand up in the crowd with a banner and be like, hey, I want to understand why you called black children super predators in the 1990s. Yeah. And Clinton would say things like... Um, She said a lot of different things. She eventually apologized for making those comments and said, I don't actually believe that and I shouldn't have said it then, but it took her a really long time. But that is the context under which Black Lives Matter was under pressure during elections. And for me, when I look back on that, I realize that um, that's not a new dynamic, that black communities often have to like kick down the door to even be considered when it comes to what's getting talked about on those stages, what's getting prioritized in those campaigns. And that's why we started the Black Futures Lab, because we actually think that time is up on that. Well, we're actually seeing, I mean, well, first of all, I want to, I mean, I don't have anything to do to, well, I guess I do have something to do with the DNC because like I, you know, want to vote left and I want to think that there are people that have like better answers to it. So I want to say like, Sorry that that was like an experience that 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 it, that was had. Yeah. Um. And I also feel like even just hearing you ex- like I just wanted like a, well I just wanted I was like curious about what your thoughts were around that. But then like it almost like you don't need to qualify or you don't need to qualify like why you felt like the way that you felt. Mm-hmm. Um. I think I was at the time just so scared that Trump was going to win. I was like, by that point, I was like pressing alarms because like everyone in my life was like, she'll probably win. Like, I'm pretty sure we got this. Like, she's nine points up. And I was like, I don't know. This is really giving me like the Walking Dead vibes. I really am. I'm I'm feeling droves of white people going to church and voting. I'm really feeling like I'm really, I've got a chill in my bones. Um, But just back to what you're saying, it's like, People of color, like, don't need to – well, I guess it's, like, that is the tricky part because it's, like, if you want people to understand, maybe you do need to explain. But then it's, like, there's certain people that even if you do explain, they're still going to be dumb. So whatever. But what I was trying to – but what I was trying to Mm -hmm, say mm -hmm. was is that that dichotomy, I think, is still plaguing the left because we're still seeing it now. Like, we're having that same thing with, like, Pelosi and with the squad kind of, like – Bullseye. And I also think that, like, referring to – it's, like, kind of lazy and silly to refer to, like, new freshmen anyone as, like, the squad. Or, like, I just feel like it's... Ew. Okay, we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Elisa Garza right after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. Um, yeah, it's, like, I... Because when I think about that, it's, like, I feel so... Um... Because, like, I interviewed Nancy Pelosi last year. Oh, how was that? It was pretty... Cool. I feel like I got to interview her live for like a Getting Curious Live at um, Benson mm-hmm. Ball in Washington, D.C. And one thing that was I was taken by that I didn't understand is like she actually came into office like in the like late 70s, early 80s. But she was like a major champion and advocate for like HIV AIDS at the time because mm-hmm. like the Reagan administration was like laughing about it in Correct. news conferences. And so but the point of what I was going to say was is that I will that like I guess I, I really feel like I. I understand not airing your dirty laundry in public as a caucus and the difference between like power and whatever. But the thing that really troubled me that really worried me from her is what AOC said was that she hadn't talked to her since this winter. And that is like, that's the biggest thing where I'm like, Madam Speaker, like must talk, must be talking to our people. Yeah, it's complicated because... What I think we're seeing, and this is also why we exist, um, is that politics are changing by force. And so uh, if on the right, right, you had um, the reason that Hillary Clinton lost the election, two big reasons. One, Donald Trump stole it. And two, (laughs) um, she didn't actually deeply engage the new American majority, which is how demographics are changing in this country. So 
when you look at it that way, and by engage, I mean deeply engage. Um, Can you? What's new American majority? New American majority is like basically voters who are not white. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, so Latinx voters, uh, Asian Pacific Islander voters, Black voters, new American majority, meaning uh, these groups are becoming the actual demographic majority of this country and are becoming increasingly politically active. And what's happening with these campaigns is that they don't really have a good sense of how to engage these communities because most of these campaigns are being run by white people. Right. So you keep having the same problem. That's why every single candidate goes to Sylvia's to eat a fried chicken dinner and half of them don't even eat fried chicken. Right. Do you think we're seeing a less racially charged subcurrent like with this election? Than- no. And I think that what's happening is that campaigns are starting to get that they at least have to signal um, to communities of color and women and queer people that they like see us. But they ultimately believe that it's white old people that are going to get out and vote. And so when you hear their messages, they're way more moderate, right? Because they're like, well, you people who are, you know, um, growing in size, you guys don't vote. So we could talk to you all day, all night. But um, it's that 65-year-old white dude who's actually going to send in his absentee ballot. So we're talking to him and we're talking to him about what he cares about. That's the tension that you see. And that's even the tension that you see with Pelosi and the new freshman um, senators who were elected. The challenge with Pelosi, and I can say this because she's from my state and she um, is a major powerhouse, but also she's old school. People inside politics are really wedded to the way things have always been. Yeah. And it's interesting as somebody who came in um, during a time when there weren't a lot of women in Congress, right? And probably she was talking about things people didn't want to talk about. And she learned, right, how to be effective in the things that she wanted to get done. I think maybe she's forgotten what that experience was like. And when I see people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, I'm like, look, they didn't win by a fluke. Ilhan Omar was elected by the largest majority of any congressperson ever. Really? Ever, ever, ever. That's major. I love that stat. That's major. My thing with Nancy Pelosi, um, with uh, Senator Pelosi, is I'm like, look, sis, you got to put some respect on their names. You might not like what they're talking about. You might not like the fact that they are not willing to go along to get along. But that is how politics change. And at the end of the day, even if you disagree with them, put some respect on their names. Because you know what? They got there. They got there on their own merits. They got there with wide margins. It wasn't no close elections. And frankly, they represent a growing discontent, not just in the party, but in the country. And the right thing to do in this moment is to figure out how do I ensure that there is collaboration between the wings of the party? That is what a leader should do. Attacking those women in the era of Me Too, in the era where women are mobilized as we've never been before, attacking those women was absolutely unacceptable. Period, dot, hands down. Yeah, I think the thing, well, I, I, I just... Where she was being a bully, yeah. I mean that. Well, because AOC has been saying that there that she's been like repeatedly singled out. I feel like what Nancy Pelosi was responding to most recently was Alex was AOC's chief of staff calling the conserv or the more moderate Democrats like the new white segregationalists. I mean, look. Then address the chief of staff. That's number one, because you're a grown up. And and he deleted the tweet. And also address him or not. I mean, you're the boss in the business. And she's really good at like not addressing people. So when, when you're addressing to. people, then that means that what they said matters to you. So that's where I think she made a mistake. She did too many interviews Ooh. from the winery. Um, talking about people she said she didn't have time for. But obviously, if you do long profiles where all you talk about is the people you don't have time for, then you have time that day. Yeah. So there's that. But also, let's just keep it a buck. Um, There's been some really unfortunate mishaps. And I don't know if it's how people are reporting it or if it's actually what's being said. But um, when this woman came forward, who is now in her late 60s, early 70s, alleging that Donald Trump raped her in Bergdorf's and Nancy Pelosi, the leader, says, I don't have time for that. I'm thinking about kids in concentration camps. That's a problem. 
you know, segregationists did say things like that when people were talking about the fact that black people were being blocked from voting or black people were being blocked from equal access to public accommodations. Segregationists said things like, I don't have time for that. Those are local issues. I'm focused on what's happening nationally. Or they would say things like, um, you shouldn't get in the business of what's happening locally. Um, you're, you outsiders are creating trouble. I don't know that I agree with the metaphor that the chief of staff was using, but I can say there is a problem inside of the party. And I think that party leaders recognize that. What they are trying to do is make sure that the party stays center when there is energy and momentum and power being built um, from a left-wing flank. This isn't unique to Democrats. I mean, this is what happened on the Republican With side. The Tea Party. And that's now why we now have Donald Trump. Right? Yeah. I mean, just to keep it a buck. I think well, I think my worry there is is that like, okay. There's several. First of all, I'm like obsessed with this conversation. I love you so much. And I like, I'm really excited to talk about this. Me too. And um, I really respect you. And like, yeah. Okay. Ditto. So, okay. So, yes. My, I had this therapist that always used to say that like the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. That's right. And I think that that is true. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually. Um, I think that when we're talking about, because basically, okay, well, first of all, it sounds to me like the DNC sucks. With certain things. And it also feels like it is a little frustrating that there should be all of these things that, like, should be fairly straightforward. Especially now. That aren't. Like, like when I think about, like, the Kavanaugh hearing and, like, when all that stuff happened with those, like, fumbled emails and trying to get um, her to come testify publicly and, like, all the mismanaged and then, communication. Like, and her, basically. Yeah. She didn't want to be outed. Yes. There was a lot of things. And, and I think also, too, like, it's never, it should never be coming out of our mouth, like, out of our, our party leader's mouth that we don't have time to hear you know, a valid complaint of a sexual assault against a sitting president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, that should not, even even in light of all the other things that we're focused on, like that is a bedside manner that is mm-hmm. like uncalled for. That Correct. reminds me of kind of when Hillary Clinton said that Nancy Reagan was a pioneer in the fight against HIV AIDS, mm-hmm. which is still something that, which is still something that really, it, it sticks with me though. And so, so when, when you do have activated people that are on the ground fighting and you do have leaders that say things dismissive sure. like that, um, and, and I think that people do know I've gone to bat for Nancy Pelosi on Twitter mm-hmm. and, like and like I like I do respect her as yeah. a leader and I do respect the things that she has done because I think that she is in a tough position. Yep. But I do think that this is like a very major point of reckoning right now for the Democratic Party and mm-hmm. for the left to find that commonplace and really come to the table and sit down mm-hmm. because the fact that these that that the squad and Nancy Pelosi haven't spoken since uh, really. Well, first of all, I was there in April and we were mm-hmm. all in the same room. Mm-hmm. So that's weird that, like, we're not, like, mm-hmm. y'all are in the same office all the time. So we really do need to be talking uh, mm-hmm. more. Um, but when we think of, like, the 65-year-old white guy that will go out and vote, I think that in 2018 we definitely have new returns on who went out and voted. Definitely. So I do think that that was, like, um, a, that was one point where we saw in some respects that if we, you know, when I say gamble on um what is the term that you said? The new, the new, new American set? majority, new American majority, <laughs> honey. I love that, honey. She's like, a new American yes, majority, yes. honey. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, because I think that that's a gamble to say, because previously, up until sixteen, we, the, I think that the reason why Nancy Pelosi wants the the party to stay center is it's it's not, and this is where I've always come from and get nervous about, like my mom. She's fierce. Mm-hmm. I love her so much. Mm-hmm. She definitely voted for Hillary over Trump. She's yep. like not a Trump supporter. Yep. However. When and I don't think that no matter who gets the nomination, my mom will vote for them. But like on the Democratic side, yep. but like when you say things like free college to someone like my mom mm-hmm. or someone like anyone in my family, mm-hmm. they're they recoil. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's and they're at the end of the day. I feel like a lot of middle of America, whether or not, it, and it is sixty five year old white men, but it's also thirty year old white men mm-hmm. and it's forty year old white men and yep. women. They vote with their wallet. Yep. And when they hear about taxes going up for anything, like when I was in high school and junior high, like there was this referendum every year to like raise the taxes for our school. Every Mm -hmm. our the shit was crumbling, and it always failed because and it was like not even that expensive of a tax increase. But see, that's a problem. 
But so, but so that would happen then. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying that, like historically, if the if the in if the incoming like return numbers are like that, these people kind of show up and put particular people in office. I'm like, I guess my question is, is like, how do we ensure that the new American majority comes out to vote in 20 to ensure that we make even bigger strides? Because and because the blue wave in 18, while it did deliver us the majority of the House, we also saw like some really important losses, like losing Claire McCaskill in Missouri was mm-hmm. a huge loss for for our, I mean, it's complicated. Yes, it was a huge loss in the sense that there are votes that would not have happened since. Correct. With her vote. Correct. Like and it would have at least been closer. And the fact that that guy who beat her is in there. And I lived in Missouri when that when that election went down. Like I was living in Kansas City, shooting yeah. career when that happened, and like yeah. I saw so much crazy, sexist, gendered, pointed attack ads sure. run against her yeah. that actually had talking points that I like. Yeah, like yeah, so, yeah. I think that's what Nancy Pelosi is saying is that like when we publicly really fucking like. Like, we just, because I, I think it's also, it's, like, hard, because, like, we've never really, the new American majority's, like, never had the power, like, historically. So it's, like, I always say, like, I'm really bad at things when I do them the first yeah. time. Or, like, but not that, like, the new but American. it's not ma- the first time. So we, uh, history doesn't start at 2016. Where we saw the new American majority actually demonstrate power was in 2008. It's the only reason we were able to get Obama elected. But in 2010, we lost. It was the single biggest loss of of state houses and and the Congress and Senate in history. And I'll tell you why. Because all of that infrastructure that was built to get Obama elected, people abandoned it in 2008 when he won. Forgetting, of course, that there was a midterm coming. Right. Right. And so here's my thing. When I think about um, ideas that people get scared or nervous about, what it shows me is that we are not yet comfortable taking and holding power. So, for example, in a situation like the one you just described, where in your school district uh, there was a tax that was failing over and over again, even though your school is crumbling, that is ridiculous to me. You deserve to go to a school that is not crumbling around you, and yet there are these values Right. That we are told that like anything that comes from the government or anything that uh, is uh, forced by the government, which is how people think about taxes, is bad, even though at the same time. Right. We do still have to figure out how do we make sure that everybody gets the things that they need. And unfortunately, it's the people who are poor. It's the people who are of color. It's the people who are queer who get the short end of the stick when people are deciding where money goes. Right. Right. If we want to change that, the notion isn't just to act like that's not a thing. And I think that's the issue that people have with the Democratic Party. Um, And even looking at it from a neutral-ish perspective, because I don't consider myself a Democrat, but I know what I need to do to get the things I need. Um, or you like, do you like, I mean, not that you have to identify, are like you like a person independent D, or something? I'm not an independent. I vote Democrat, but I don't, I don't see the Democratic Party as my party. Are you like a gorgeous libertarian or something? I'm definitely not a libertarian. What What are we? Like, I, should, can we, I want to join your party, Queen. I'm somebody who believes that the only way to make change is by figuring out how to make the impossible possible. Now, when Nancy Pelosi started in politics, nobody thought that there was going to be funding for HIV and AIDS. And if all we had done was talk to people who were like, well, I want it for like white, middle class people who have AIDS, but not black and Latino and Asian people who have AIDS, we actually wouldn't have gotten that far, right? People didn't like the idea of interracial marriage for a very long time, but... Because people pushed, people's minds and their values changed. So I I guess my thing is, one of the things I worry about in this moment, moving into 2020, where everything is actually possible, is that if we kind of hold on to this notion that um, we only have to talk to to the people in the center because that's where the country is, I think that's wrong. I think that actually... Um, We're talking about two different things, which is that the middle of the country has been ignored by politics for a very long time. They have not been ignored by the right. So the people who um, tell us that um, government is encroaching on your life, um, the people who tell us that um, business should not be regulated, the people who tell us that 
Um, uh, at the same time they tell us government is encroaching on your life, they also tell us that they don't want a separation between church and state. Yeah, and they want to regulate marijuana, regulate people's things, bodies. All the things, yeah. but they don't want to be regulated. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, those people are winning the info war, right? But yeah, at the same time, we're not countering with anything different. We're just saying, well, let's just meet in the middle. And actually, for a majority of the country, people need different things. There's more schools crumbling now than they were when you were coming up, right? And there are more and more um, people who literally entire towns that have been decimated. And I guarantee you, if there was organizing infrastructure in those towns, people's values are actually much more closely aligned to what people say is like the radical flank. These aren't radical ideas. They're just radical in relationship to the extreme right. right? Yeah. So let me give you an example. My friend George, uh, who is from Medora, Indiana, which is like a town, sounds like the town you're from has been doing this project where he's deeply engaging and investing in white working class people in rural areas and bringing them together with working class people of color in rural areas and really thinking about where do our values align. And I can tell you one of the things that he tells me and that I hear from the stories on the ground is that people say, God, nobody's ever talked to me like that before. Nobody's engaged me on that level before. The only people engaging me are people on talk radio and the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. So how did it work? Like, what does that look like? So it literally looks like talking with people about what they're experiencing every single day, asking them who they think is responsible for that, asking them how they think it can be changed, inviting them into an organization that can help make that change, that can build a strategy to make that change, and then actually coming together across race, across gender, and fighting together, which, frankly, for a lot of the country is how people live already. So I think you would agree with me that there's a misconception about places that you're from that um, everybody's racist. Well, actually, a lot of people are poor and those people don't all look like each other. Right. And even though there's some segregation, right, people actually, if they have jobs, they go to work together. You go to work at the Walmart together. Right. Or the dollar store or the whatever. And you're not like, oh, those N words or oh, whatever, except when it comes to starting to talk about politics. And it's because, right, um, our politicians are actually the wedge drivers. And because they're the decision makers, we have to make a choice of which side we stand on. I think that that gap is about people not being deeply involved in politics, like leaving it to a smaller group of people to make those decisions. But they also shape how we understand why we're dealing with the problems we're dealing with. Why does everybody that I'm working with at the Walmart not make anything for money, not get maternity leave, um, you know, not able to form a union? Is that the fault of immigrants or is that the fault of Walmart? <laughs> well, I think, okay, there's like so many things. Well, I think one thing to that's important about like messaging when we think about it is like turnout in 16 was like under or like around 50%. I think on sure. average, don't they say that like that usually for presidential elections turnouts at like 50%? Sure. So where do we drum up the extra? Per- so if, if it's not about moving the 50% or just under 50% that came out and voted for Trump, uh, and if it's about engaging the new American majority to come out mm-hmm. um, and at the same. So so because it's if, if if my therapist is right and it's all about balance. Yes. Right. So it's like, OK, do we because um, I, I don't think that Pelosi is trying to say that we need to come to the middle with Republicans at least in my mind. I I mean, she had to with, in certain points because of the Senate situation. In my mind, she's saying we need to come to the middle with each other within our own party. And how do you get the Democrats in the state Senate of, say, Indiana to go along with something that's going on, you know, on in California or, you know, New York? Because I know that, like, the people that are, you know, progressive and, and the people that are in the Walmarts uh, or, you know, just more rural places in the middle of America, like, it's going to be harder to get the Democratic voters sure. in those places to get on board with Medicare for all, sure. to get them on board with. Um, you have to organize the voters in order to organize the party. So my question is this, is how do we that's that's kind of my what I'm scared about is like, I don't want anyone to get what my stepdad would have called the fuckets where they just like leave the table. People do. And and that's what I'm saying. And mm-hmm. I, 
And I see the writing on the wall that that is kind of because we haven't really dealt with this within our party and or, you know, the party or, you know, within the Democratic Party. So it's like, how do you get the progressive, the more progressive side of things heard and get their needs met and then get the more uh, Democratic people or people that consider themselves Democratic in the middle of America and those more like. In those places, like, how do you get them aligned? I think you have to, there's three things that I think are important. Number one, you need to make sure that the constituencies of the people who are elected are organized and engaged. And what I think has happened in the party, to be honest, is that it's become much more about the internal weirdness of the party and not actually building the power of the party. And the power of the party is the people Period. Point blank. Yeah. So let me give you an example. In my state, um, in the 2018 midterms, the uh, state party raised about $30 million for the election. They spent about 50000 on black outreach. $30 million, 50000 right? But if you actually want change to happen, you need to increase the level. And is that... that- your home state That's in California. California. Got it. Okay. And yeah. California is has a sizable black population. Yeah, it's like way more than whatever the percentage of 50,000 For the 000. West Coast. Yeah. Now, <laughs> right. 30 million raised for state Democratic Party in California and 50,000 $50,000. That is a slap in the face. This is happening also nationally. This is a slap in the face. So how can the people of Indiana, state Democrats, say, like, get it together and come out and vote when these are the... This is my whole Because we're voting point. with our pocketbook. This and this is like what we're point. told we're being worth. This is not cute. Exactly. So in some ways, what we do is we kind of create our own destiny because we're like, oh, those people don't come out to vote. But we don't do anything to get them to come out to vote. But then at the same time, we also don't do enough to protect their votes when they do cast them. So I spent time in Georgia... Um, during Stacey Abrams' election, I went to a polling place that actually the federal government had to step in because Brian Kemp uh, had voting machines delivered with no power cords. And it was in a working class black community. And so literally there is a line wrapped around the building three times, mamas with babies, elderly people inside this hot building. All the machines were empty. Only one had a plug. So one person can vote at a time. People are being told, your polling place changed, you're not on the rolls, um, you're going to have to cast a provisional vote, all of these things, right? So, I mean, I think that when we're at the final analysis, it's like, well, if you don't protect people's rights to vote in the face of gerrymandering and redistricting and, like, this crap. And the Supreme Court just ruled, like, enforced. But we got, like, one good one and then one bad. Right. Like, one did. 2016 was also the first election that the Voting Rights Act was not in effect, right, since 1965. So increase the level of protection for people's votes, period. Uh, Increase the level of infrastructure that we're investing in so that people feel like, This is a party that cares about me, right? Regular engagement, not this stupid symbolic fried chicken dinner and a reverend stuff. Yeah, on the ground, real interaction. town halls and kitchen table conversations. Well, we see AOC doing like every day. There should be millions of dollars invested in that. And I guarantee you. And And we have the money for it. July 11th, 2019 at 2 p.m., I said if we did that, we would 100% win in 2020. Because you know what? That's what Republicans are doing. So, and okay, so because really like this, because we do need a political revolution. I mean, and I do think that one thing like because I, I was thinking about this a long time ago. There was a there was a white kid who was like 18 who got shot by police in a sting operation to get a yep. dime bag of weed. Yep. And I remember back then thinking when that story happened, I was like, this is this is a militarization of the police force issue. That's right. There is all these weapons coming back from Iraq that are going to like all these police forces and like right. all these communities all across the uh, country with, with police officers that don't know how to use them. That's right. So people are being like just brutalized. It's just, it's, yep. and, 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 and that kid was a middle of the lower class kid. And like, I, so I was like, there is a class and race issue and to That's not, 100%. and to not see the intersectionality of yep. the fact that there is police brutality and it is more often people of color first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But then there is a piece of classism there, too. And there is a queer targeting piece. There's all of those things are together. But people of color first and foremost. And I think that it's like we all need to do a well, especially fucking white people need to do a better (laughs) job of like understanding all the forces at play. Yeah. 
Well, and, let's take a soft left because I can tell you that's what we tried to do with the Black Census Project. Yes, we have to talk about that. So, because part of what all this this using power is like the 2010, because of that midterm election, the census got set up really poorly and we're still suffering from the effects of that. So, yeah. one of the things that's happened from Black Lives Matter is what you're championing now, which is the Black Census Project. And I should say, um, in 2017, I left the day to day operations of Black Lives Matter to start a new organization. Black Lives Matter is alive and well, 40 chapters in four countries, kicking butt, taking names. And in fact, I just saw on my uh, Facebook feed that uh, some of our efforts uh, in California just passed a use of force law at the state level that is regulating how police police, which I think is important. So Black Lives Matter, alive and well, moving policies in states and getting people elected, closing down jails like my sister Patrice is doing in in Los Angeles. The Black Futures Lab was created as an organization that is focused on making black people powerful in politics. And we wanted to change the way that candidates, campaigns, parties, and our movement understand not only black engagement, but what's at stake when we don't engage black people. We conducted the largest survey of black people in America in 154 years. We trained 106 black organizers in 28 states across the nation. We invested $500,000 in those organizations to be able to participate in this effort. And we surveyed people from across the political spectrum, across geographies, people who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated, people who are homeless and people who are wealthy, people who are liberal, people who are conservative, black people to better understand what do you experience in the economy, in democracy, in our society? And bigger than that, what do you want to see for your future? We um, released the reports. We've got a report out that looked at the most politically engaged respondents from the Black Census Project who said that uh, low wages that were not enough to support a family was the number one issue that kept them up at night alongside uh, the lack of affordable health care and the lack of affordable housing. And then violence, either by policing um, or by racism, was also a major issue that people were facing. You can find it at blackfutureslab.org. This month, we also released a report on the um, respondents from our census who identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, Um, And next month, we will be releasing a report on gender because we understand gender and sexuality are not the same things. What we found, again, was that those same issues that the wide range of respondents were concerned about were even sharper amongst our 5,500 LGB plus respondents. So what you understand from these uh, from this data is two things that are important. One Even across our differences, uh, black people are concerned about the same things and we're concerned about the things that all Americans care about. So it's a huge issue when the party that wants to take Donald Trump out of office but also that wants to move the country forward is not engaging black people in the way that we need to. You can't get health care. You can't get housing. You can't get the things you want without engaging black communities. And one more thing. An overwhelming res- a number of our respondents said that they believe that politicians don't care about us. That was across age, across income, across gender. And that is really scary in a moment where we really need democracy to work. Well, we see, I mean, we put our money where our mouth is. I mean, I just 100%. said that a million times. And mm-hmm. I mean, when we think about the whole um, what Melinda Gates talks about, how like women make up 50% of the population, but like there, we don't have 50% of women like anywhere. That's right. People of color make up a huge amount of the population. And so to be for the microcosm of this California mm-hmm. state Demo- or Democratic Party making yeah. 50 mil and spending 50,000, yeah. that has to be amended like all across the country. That's and we right. really need to be talking about that. 100%. Do you think that the best suggestion for that is with how can we say to our elected leaders, like, hey, we want more engagement with Black Lives Matter, with people of color? Like, how do we get our elected leaders to talk about this? Well, we're not waiting for them. We are building a political agenda around the responses from the survey that will be out in August and we'll be excited to share it. Senator Kamala Harris just shouted out our work at the Essence Festival. She's using it to develop her policy platform and other campaigns should be doing that as well. Do we have an endorsement yet? We will be endorsing not as the Black Futures Lab, but as Black to the Future Action Fund. We'll be endorsing 
and we'll let you know. But when. your personal endorsement, like, will go along with that one. I will do my own personal endorsement, and of course, it will align with my organization. Oh my one. gosh, I feel like such a journalist right now. It's going ah! to be fun. But the point of endorsing is to make sure that our concerns are being addressed. And frankly, um, I can tell you that um, we're also going to make sure that our policy agenda is being endorsed by our communities. So we're already in touch with 30,000 black people, and that number is only growing every single day. And so whoever is um, being endorsed by us will know that they have the backing of people who are endorsing our agenda as well. Um, Elisa Garza, I am so grateful to have you. I, Thank like, you so are much. You, I, we, I need to talk to you all the time. I want to have you back. I want to talk Let's more. Let's do it. Um, I would I'm, love it. Did, I, did we get to the past and the present enough? And what did you I think so. I mean, there's more we can there's talk about. So but we much could do more. Three, I actually four, talked five. about politics. I didn't mean to. That's it's not even where my mind went. Like my, my initial did. plan didn't work at all. I'm so glad we did. Love you so much. You so much your time. Too. I really Thank appreciate you so it. Much. Thank you. Yay. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Bennett. My guest this week was Alicia Garza. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JBN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend. Show them how to subscribe. We love you guys. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. Getting Curious is produced by Emily Bostic, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Harry Nelson, and Colin Anderson. Hey.